Cool. Good morning, everyone. Um, this is my second like full-length sermon, so super excited. Yeah, get your get some napkins, and I'll sign them that way when I'm when I'm famous. Yeah, I take that back. I shouldn't I shouldn't say stuff like that in the house of God. So. Um, um, so yeah, we're just gonna we're gonna skip announcements, and uh, I will pray for. I just found out that Paul is sick with the flu. Um, and any other prayer requests? If you guys just want to throw them my way right now, we'll just have a time of, of prayer for our needs. And um, but then we're gonna get into the word. And I, I'm having a, I'm sensing that we'll be done a little early today, which maybe will be kind of nice on Christmas Eve. Um, but are there any other prayer requests that I can lift up before we get going, aside from Paul and his flu? Yes, with um. Okay. All right. Got it. Anyone else? Yeah. Okay, very good. Yes. All right. And your name? I don't I don't think we've met. Sylvia, nice to meet you. Um anyone else? Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, of course. Yeah. Anyone anyone else? All right. If you would join me in a in a, in a time of prayer, that'd be that'd be great. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you again that we are in your house and um Lord, we acknowledge that you are our healer, that you are our provider. Um, we pray that you would give us this day our daily bread, Lord. That that means that you are, that you oversee our lives. You see the details, and, and you and you fulfill our needs. And while we may confuse our needs and our wants, Lord, we know that you are sovereign over us, and that more importantly, you love us. Um, and what a blessing it is to have a, a sovereign God who is in control, who also loves us as children. Um, but right now, Lord, we lift up our, our prayer uh, requests. We lift up our needs to you. We lift up the, the Hadamio family, Lord, um, with health, with finances, with, with family strife, Lord. There's, there's, there's a lot going on um, in, their, in their side of the world, Lord. But um, um, Lord, I pray that they would find strength and that they would find comfort in you. Lord, we, uh, situations don't always pan out the way we want them to, um, but ultimately you're in control. And um, and it's it's tough to pray for for things, Lord. It's sometimes we want to pray for Your will, and we ought to pray for Your will. But we're also scared that that Your will is not going to go the way we want, Lord. But we do pray for Your will over the Hadamio family and, and their extended relatives, Lord. We pray that You would be in control, um, but that You'd be protecting Bob and Becky um, through all this, through health, through finances, through strife, and um, and that ultimately, Lord, whatever happens, that You would be glorified in the end. Um, we pray for the the Vegas shooting incident, God. We pray that. Again, comfort in the name of Jesus for the families who have lost people um, to the shooter, Lord. This is a, a trauma that we shouldn't have to deal with. Um, and frankly, I, I don't. I don't think I'm, I'm equipped to, to offer up a, a good enough prayer for those families. Um, we pray for the for the firemen fighting all these fires, Lord. We pray for the people who have lost houses in them, Lord. We pray that uh, again for comfort, for provision. Um, there's definitely a sense of confusion and, and, and loss and lost. Um, in a time like this, I can't imagine what it's like to lose a home. Um, 
So we pray for those families, and we pray for the safety and protection of those families as well as the firefighters who are, who are giving up their lives, protecting these homes and protecting these families. And Lord, anything else that I've missed, we, we surrender at your feet, knowing that you are a God who is in control, um, that we may not be distracted and torn apart um, from, from what you would have for us this morning. And, oh, and uh, we also lift up Sylvia's balance, Lord, so that she, she can um, get back to doing life regularly and that she would also be focused on on you today, Lord. We pray that our hearts would be to you, towards you, undistracted, unhindered, and that we would have a fresh encounter with with you today. And Lord, I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase, that I would disappear like James prayed. I thought that was really good, Lord. We love you and we thank you in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So, today we're going to be talking about pride and we're going to be looking through the book of Job. Um, and I thought after I was done that a funny title would be Pride and Pred Job this. <laughs> cool. Thank you for laughing. I really appreciate that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so pride is one of the, the topics that I'm kind of passionate about. And, and over, over the course of these recent years of me growing, I've, I've learned a little bit more about it. And I've learned um, just what a crafty and... Um, what a great problem it is in, in people. And so um, I'm going to start out with a quote that I think is St. Augustine, maybe tweaked a little bit, but it goes, pride is the mother pregnant with all sins. And that's it. Um, but I think it's a, a really powerful quote, and I think two things can be meant by it. Um, firstly, the original sin, not being Adam and Eve, but actually being Satan, his original sin was pride. He would, wanted to be like the Most High, he thought. He could be as great as or greater than um, a, an arrogance, a cockiness. Um, but also, with perhaps few exceptions, every transgression that we commit can be traced back to some species of pride. And um, upon beginning the lifelong hunt to root out pride from within, he reveals that pride does have many different species. Um, the obvious ones like arrogance and cockiness are easy to spot, self-inflated, self-absorbed, egos, so on and so forth. But there are some that are not so obvious. And we're going to be looking at some of these species in our word this morning. So if you guys could turn, if you have with you your Bibles, to Job, that would be rad. And I've broken up uh, the message into three parts. We're going to look at Job's friends, firstly, then we're going to look at Job himself, and then we're going to look at God and see what can be pulled from um, the story of Job. Um, uh, we're going to be starting in, let's see here, I'm going to give a brief overview, um, but I'm going I'm to be starting in chapter 2, I think. Yeah, chapter 2, verse 11 to 13. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to begin with a, a rough overview. I'm just going to throw these as I finish them. There we go. So a very rough overview of the, of the Job story, if you're not familiar. Um, Job is a righteous guy. Um, he has great wealth as a, as a family, and he sacrifices for himself, for his sins, and he also sacrifices for his, his children in, in case that they sinned, um, and they're during their day in and day out, which is, you know, pretty nice of him. Um, Satan, the adversary, enters the scene and has a discussion with God. Satan thinks Job is righteous because, because he is healthy and because he has much. So Satan is given permission by God to take all these from Job in an attempt to prove that Job's uh, faithfulness is merely superficial. Um, Job does not curse God. Job's friends show up, his three friends show up, and, and for a week, they mourn with him, which I'm going to bring attention to later. Job's friends try to explain why Job has incurred suffering, and they fail. 
Job's patience eventually starts to wear out, kind of. He remains pretty integrous, pretty honorable throughout all the dialogues, but we can see that he does get worn out. Um, And then this fourth dude, Elihu, shows up and says basically everything right. And then God answers out of the whirlwind, which is really cool, I think. And then Job repents and his fortunes are restored. Um, There's both a lot to draw from this book and also not what you might think. Um, This is not exactly the book that I would offer to someone who is suffering because it's not a promise of an easy life. It's not even a promise of an answer to your suffering, which is often what we want when things aren't going our way. We want to know a why, which this book doesn't exactly offer. Um, But I think there's still a lot to be gleaned from this book. Um, So I'm going to be reading from chapter 2. And pardon me while I turn there. So we're starting with uh, Job's three friends, whose names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Um, But before we get into their folly, their their mistake, I do want to read something that is often overlooked. And people like, no no one seems to talk about this, but I think it's a really good point that we can um, adopt in our own lives. Um, So Job chapter 2, verse 11 reads, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil, that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. So this is after his... All his possessions have been taken. He's lost his home. He's lost his family. And now he's lost his health. And, um, you know, it, it recounts like he has boils that he's scraping with like broken pottery because he's in so much pain. Um, and, his, and his three friends show up because they hear about this and they come to comfort him, um, which I think is really cool that they, A, did this, and B, took a week and just sat in silence. I think we as Christians can be guilty of trying to find Band-Aid Bible verses for people. Um, friends, family, coworkers, they come to us and they, and they start to share a little window into their lives of, of what they're going through and we immediately think, we rack our brains trying to find like the, the perfect Bible verse that'll make them feel better. You know, their, their aching spirit. And, um, you know, verses like God works all things together for good and then we tap them on their head and then we send them off. Be blessed. Um, I'm not saying that these verses aren't powerful or that they aren't imbued with the Spirit or full of hope and comfort or that they aren't even timely. I think verses can be incredibly timely. Um, But I think we're missing a greater opportunity in situations like these. One of the reasons Christ is a perfect high priest is because, as Hebrews 14.15 says, he was in every respect tempted as we were yet without sin. The reason Christ is such so powerful and so potent is because he relates to us. Christ was tempted and without sin, but he can sympathize with us as he's a go-between between us and God. And that's another reason why the gospel is so powerful. It is in and of itself a powerful message, but when it impacts real people and changes us really from the inside out, that's a message that we can bring to people. It's called a testimony. That's why testimonies are so powerful. That's why courts use testimonies, and that's why the gospel is very potent when it's accompanied with a testimony. Because we are real, tangible, relatable people that are telling the world that God loves them. The opportunity that we miss when people are suffering is to just be with them, to sit and to mourn and to lament alongside them, which I think can bring a ton of comfort 
and encourage someone drastically when they're going through stuff like this. So Job's friends sit with him in silence for a whole week after weeping and tearing their clothes and sprinkling dust on their heads, all of which are signs of, of lament and uh, humility. And while, yes, they do eventually misrepresent God and um, that whole kerfuffle, um, they behaved incredibly brotherly in this scene, and I think that it's admirable and something that we ought to adopt in our dealings with um, our brothers and sisters in the church and, and, our, and our friends out in the world and in the workforce and in our schools. But enough about that. That wasn't the main point. I just wanted to call attention to that because I don't think people do. Uh, but now let's get into their, their folly. Chapters 4 through 38 are a dialogue between the three friends and Job trying to figure out why Job is suffering. And each friend takes like a, a turn or two or more. And Job gives responses to all of these. And we aren't going to go into too much detail of, into the dialogues, um, but rather observe the underlying issue with the approach that the three friends have. Um, so the three friends have basically one of three reasons for why Job has incurred suffering. And the first one is Job has secret sin or unintentional sin somewhere in his life. Number two is Job's family must have sinned. And number three, Job must have intentionally sinned. And just to clarify, I had an English teacher uh, say this. They said, unintentional sin is aiming for the mark and missing. Intentional sin is not aiming for the mark and shooting anyway. I just thought that was kind of a neat thing. Um, But he either has unintentionally sinned, intentionally sinned, or his family has. But we read in the intro that Job is a very righteous man. He sacrifices for himself. Um... So he's righteous in that sense, he's, he's clean in that sense, and he sacrifices for his children in case they sinned. You know, he's really covered all his bases. Um, but we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that. We can read this through the, the eyes of the, Old Test, uh, the New Testament. Um, so their assumption that he sinned isn't exactly incorrect because everyone sins. It's not like wrong thinking, and it's not a stretch to think that Job might have sinned. Um, But the rationale behind these reasons is that of a Deuteronomic law approach, which is a kind of cause-effect approach, um, that if you're obedient and you keep to God's word, things will go well for you, and that if you do not, the opposite. So following the train of thought, the next logical step after Job is suffering is Job must have sinned. Cause-effect, Deuteronomic law. Um... Again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with this rationale, but it's rather the heart that is the issue in this particular instance. As always, it's a heart issue when it comes to the Bible. For the three friends, their problem is not their Deuteronomic logic. The problem is that they presume to know the answer. This brings us to our first species of pride today, and it's the pride of certainty. This one is kind of difficult to talk about because everyone has an opinion. Generally speaking, people see other opinions as hostile threats to the mothership that is themselves. Um, you know, like, how dare you like pineapple on pizza? Or vice versa. How dare you not like that movie? It's a classic, it's an Oscar winner, or whatever, whatever. Like, we, we, get, we, we get at it over some dumb stuff. Um, but all joking aside, people, and particularly Christians, will get up in arms against people uh, over things that aren't even necessarily biblical, um, which is frustrating, and sometimes against other Christians, no less, um, because they are so sure of themselves. I'm still perplexed. Every time, I, every time I think like Christians are done hating people, I see some news article where there's a band of Christians that are hating people. And I'm always perplexed when I see Christians protesting with signs outside wherever saying God hates gays. Now, this is not going to turn into a discussion on homosexuality and who God hates and doesn't hate. Um, I think God is love, and I think God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot of room in there for hate. 
But these Christians are so sure um, that they're making these signs as if homosexual desires are somehow higher on God's FBI no-fly list or something. Like, speaking on God's behalf is, is a very dangerous thing to do, and misrepresenting him is, is a, a huge no-no, which is what Job's friends do. Um, I bring this up because there are so many Christians who are absolutely certain of this notion or another notion that they're willing to fashion these signs and broadcast them to the world, a world that needs the gospel, a world that doesn't need their, their hate and their opinion. The world desperately longs to know the affections of a father that won't let them go, ever. That's what the world needs to hear. The world doesn't need to hear that God hates any of them. And it, frankly, it doesn't work either, so I don't know what they're thinking they're going to accomplish. Like Job's friends, this certainty has caused these Christians to misrepresent God and has no doubt imprinted an incorrect image of God onto the hearts and minds of those individuals. There's, there's a, a great sense of humility in being able to, to hear someone out. There's a great sense of humility in being able to admit that you're wrong, that being able to just hear the other side, even if you know you're not going to agree. Um, but this is, this is touchy because this starts, when we start to relinquish our certainty on, on things, we start to move towards naturally open-mindedness, which is scary. Um, it's gotten a bad rap, and I'm not entirely sure why. I, I mean... Are we so, uncon- at least with regards to our faith, are we so unconvinced of the gospel? Are we so weak in our faith that we're just going to up and switch religions to whichever person we talk to? Like a Jehovah's Witness comes knocking on our door like, oh, don't talk. I'm, I'm weak in my faith. I don't want to hear an alternative because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch. Really? Like, I don't, I'm not saying that's you guys. I'm not saying that's me. But like, why, why do we shut people down? Why do we shut people out? Why are we so... We put up so many guards that we don't even let people speak anymore. We don't even hear the other side. And, and who knows how much we're missing when we, when we shut people down because we know that they're wrong. You know what I mean? I'm not saying to drop your guard. No, by all means, keep it up. Keep your guard up. Remember, put every, every spirit to the test. Put everything into the test against Scripture. Um, but when we shut people out because we're scared or, or for whatever reason... When we, when we shelter ourselves in, in churches and friend circles that think like we do, we're, we're, missing, we're missing out on a lot, and it's not a healthy way to live, and it's not a healthy way to grow either. This is kind of like what happened in the story of Job. Job's situation challenged the, the theology of his friends. They come from a Deuteronomic background. Job is suffering for what appears to be no reason. Job, Job is saying, no, like, I haven't, I haven't done anything. Like I've, I've, I've tried, I've thought, and I'm, I can't think of any reason why. Well there, well, there must be. There must be. They're certain of it. And that's the only reason that they can come up with. And it's the certainty that eventually begins to frustrate Job, and they pr- repeatedly shut him down and persist that he must have sinned somewhere in his life. You know, we have churches split over, you know, interpretations of, of Bible verses that people are certain of. You know, we have all these denominations because someone was certain of something. The I'm right and you're wrong certainty mentality is what starts wars. When people die over this kind of thinking. We don't need any more of that. We don't need it in the church especially. I mean, Christ, I'm, I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong, but in John 17, Christ was praying that we would be one as he and the Father are one. But then I drive down the street and like just on Glendora alone, there's like five churches all with different names and different denominations, and it's like, 
Are you guys okay? Heavenly Father, we lift up Rochelle to you, Lord. We don't know what's going on, but we just pray for your healing hand and, and um, again, your provision over her right now that you would keep her safe. In the name of Jesus, for your children said, amen. You guys could be continuing to pray for us as we continue. Um. The reason I'm spending so much time on uncertainty is because I want to remind you guys that the Christian life is not one of certainty, but one of faith. And um, Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And see, we often think that the opposite of faith is doubt, which I would submit to you is not correct. Um, I think the opposite of faith isn't doubt, but doubt is rather the counterpart to faith. The opposite of faith, and, and as far as I can logically rationalize it, is certainty. If you would, if you would with me, entertain a little visual, um, if you have the belief slider, like a, like a light switch that slides, um, you either move towards belief, you either move towards faith, or you move towards doubt. You know, kind of like trust and not trust. It's like, it's, it's a degree that can be, that can be changed. And um, when we think about, you know, what God has done and his working in us, and we recount all the encounters that we have with him, our, our faith grows. Um, on the other side, we have certainty. Um, you can think of this as a slider, you can think of it as a switch. Um, you either know 2 plus 2 equals 4, or you don't. It's like, it's one or the other. I mean, you can have the tools equipped to figure out math problems that you don't know. Um, but certainty is, is like a switch. You either know or you don't. But that's not the life that we're called to. It is impossible to please God without faith. The opposite of faith, as far as I can rationalize it, is not doubt. That's just the counterpart, just like light and darkness. The opposite of faith is not doubt. It is certainty. Certainty causes a lot of destruction. And as we see in the book of Job, this certainty eventually change the tone of his friends. They start out kind of sensitive, you know, aware of what Job is going through, but eventually they, they get a little more aggressive with their approach, which is not very comforting. Um, and ultimately, they upset Job further and misrepresent God. So one species of pride that I, I, I've seemed to have identified is certainty. And I try to have the humility to, to entertain the notion that I could be wrong. I'm not wrong often, I think. I think I'm right about a lot of stuff, um, but I think there's a, an incredible mark of maturity. There's an incredible mark of humility in someone who can just sit and listen. You know, the Bible says, be quick to, sp- quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get angry. You know, it's, it's you know, we're, we're so quick to, to start arguments. We're so quick to tell people that they're wrong if they don't like pineapple on their pizza. We're, we get up in arms so quickly over things that we are sure of. Um, and pineapple on pizza, that you go outside and have fun with that one. But when it, comes to the, when it comes to faith, when it comes to this Christian life, we should be trying our best to not tear ourselves apart 
over verse interpretations. We should be coming together on the essentials like Christ and him crucified, which I think we might need a little work on considering how many churches I see and how many denominations I see. Um, anyways, let's move on. The second portion of our, our discussion today is going to be looking at Job. Through the dialogues between Job and his friends, we can definitely see that Job is worn out, although he maintains his re- integrity for the most part. Um, he does get worn out. Chapters 23, 29, 30, and 31 of Job, chapters 23, 29, 30, and 31, are where Job begins to make his defense case against God. The chapter in particular I want to call your attention to is 23, which I'm going to read a small portion of, verses 1 to 7. This is titled, Job replies, Where is God? Then Job answered and said, verse 2, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I'd be acquitted by him forever by my judge. Um, Them's fighting words, Job. Like, I understand that, like, from what he can see, his plight is unjustified. There is no reason for his suffering, but this is, like, pretty audacious. This is pretty, a pretty lofty declaration on Job's part, wouldn't you agree? If you haven't read the book of Job, again, I encourage you to do so. This is just a small snippet of what Job is thinking and feeling. Um, we see him go back and forth. You know, he, like, clings to his integrity, like he's not going to curse God, but we do see that he's worn out, and he does kind of go back and forth. He's frustrated. He's frustrated with God. Um, so far, he's cursed the day of his birth. He's questioned why the wicked are allowed to prosper. He's like, you know, why, did I, why was I even allowed to live up until this point if this calamity was what was awaiting me? You know, so he's definitely warring with what's going on. Um, I don't really need to spend a whole lot of time on Job because there isn't a whole lot hidden. It's just, it's very, I think it's very plain just from what he's going through. We can see him going back and forth. We can see, obviously, what he's dealing with. And, um, you know, he is a very upright man. We see that from the introduction given as well as how he responds to the dialogues with few exceptions. Um, but, you know, I think if, if you are dealing with suffering, if you're going through something, you obviously want to identify with Job. Oh, I'm suffering. I'm going through something. So I'm, I relate to Job right now in this season. Or maybe, maybe you've been dealing with something a lot, but you know, you, we tend to kind of gravitate towards Job. Um, but frankly, I think Job hand, handled himself a lot better than we ever do in situations of suffering. Um, that's why I say there's not a whole lot to unpack because the only person that we relate to is Job and he handled himself way better than we did. Um, we can relate to either of the three friends. We can relate to Job or Elihu, but chances are we, we relate to Job and chances are he's got us beat. Um, just remember at the beginning of all this ordeal, at the beginning of his suffering, after he lost his, his house, his family, and then his health, his wife is saying, curse God and die. And he responds, um, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is incredibly humble. And this is incredibly profound. If all you pull from the book of Job is the Lord gives and the Lord takes, blessed be the name of the Lord, that, that'll be enough. You'll get the gist of the book and that'll be loads of wisdom that you can carry on with you in your life. And he also says in a couple verses later, shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? Again, also very profound and very humble. However, despite his, um, his good start, Job is struggling with his suffering. 
Um, as far as he's concerned, he doesn't, hasn't done anything to deserve it, and as such, his pride is beginning to show, as we saw in chapter 23. Now, I'm not saying that Job is necessarily a prideful man. He's not an arrogant, you know, jerk. He's not like, you know, a cocky football player that's, you know, cliche in all the movies. That's not what I'm saying Job is. However, under these particular circumstances, pride has taken root in his heart and is starting to flourish. And by the end of the story, we'll see um, that Job will learn his lesson. He will learn his pride lesson, and the pride in his heart will be eradicated. Um, the particular pride that he is dealing with right now is a, is a self-focused pride. Again, a much smaller degree than, you know, we think of cockiness and we think of self-inflated, narcissism, self-absorbed, all that kind of stuff. Um, and you kind of want to say, like, oh, give Job a break. Like, he's going through a lot. Like, can we really try to pin pride on him right now after all is said and done? And the answer is yes, we can, because pride is a very serious thing, and it's, um, it's no joke in the eyes of God. Um, but yeah, this particular species of pride is, is the obvious one. It's the self-absorbed one. It's the self-inflated one. And um, I was going to bring this up later, but I'll bring it up now. Um, C.S. Lewis has a quote that goes, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Would you guys agree with me that humility is the opposite of pride? If you have someone who is arrogant on the opposite end of the spectrum is someone who is humble. If you have a king who is walking around in like lofty robes, you have someone who is washing feet. Kind of like Jesus. Did not come with fanfare and, and, and gold, but he came on a donkey. He came in a manger and he washed feet. He behaved as a servant. That's humble. That is a, a life of humility. If the opposite of pride is, is humility, and, and going off of C.S. Lewis's definition, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is not a depreciating or a devaluing of yourself. Um, it's getting your mind and your eyes off of you. If you guys ever get the chance to, I would uh, commend you talk to Rick Williams. Williamson? Williamson. He's got a really cool story um, when he was a junior psychiatrist when he was just starting out practicing um, about 9-11 and how he was in a hospital that overlooked um, the Pentagon. And... Um, just a really brief story. He said that everyone in the, in the psych ward, all the other doctors left because, you know, the country was in a state of terror, so they all went home to their families, but he stuck around because they, they left the junior psychiatrist in charge of the entire psych ward on the top level of the hospital. And he said for, I think, 20 or 30 minutes, everyone in the psych ward, I, all of the patients, for 20 minutes, as they're seeing it on the news and they look out the window and they're seeing 9-11 happening, they all came out of their state and were completely normal for 20 minutes. There was something big enough outside of themselves to capture their attention that they were fine. They were okay. And once things had kind of settled, they went back into their, their psychosis, their psychotic state. There's definitely something to be said about getting outside of yourself is incredibly healing. I wasn't even going to share this, but I'm going to share it. Um, I have, n up until recently, I had never dealt with depression. That just wasn't something that I ever dealt with. Um, I would just recite a Bible verse and it would go away. Ah. This is easy. I felt ill-equipped to talk to people who dealt with depression, um, but I was, it was nice not having to deal with it. And then at some season in my life, I was, I was depressed. I'll just call on my Bible verses, and I'll tell it to go away, and I'll remind myself that I'm a child of God and that I'm loved and that I have value, and it didn't work. And I was, it was scary. And I finally understood why depression is so haunting for people because it doesn't go away. I, could, I couldn't shake it for the first time, and that was terrifying, um, especially since I had this track record of being able to beat it, um, and all of a sudden I couldn't. <laughs> and um, 
I was using the restroom when God decided to speak to me. <laughs> Woe is me, for I am undone. And um, God kind of spiritually like slapped me on the back of the head, and he said, you've been spending all of your time thinking about yourself. I was thinking about what I was going to buy, who I was going to date, where I was going to go to school. I was like, me, 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 me. It was all my thoughts were concerned with. And I had reaped depression. He says, you're a broken person. If you spend all your time thinking about you, you who is broken, why would you reap anything other than brokenness? If all you do is spend your time thinking about you and how broken you are and woe is me and you're suffering, which might be totally unjustified, like Job, like, he, d- he clearly didn't deserve it. I mean, his case is pretty strong, but the point is, get your eyes off of you and onto Jesus. Maybe you're struggling with sin. Get your eyes off of sin and onto Savior. When you get your mind and your eyes off of yourself and onto God, that's when healing and restoration and, and the fruit of the Spirit can start to take, can take hold and take root and actually grow to fruition. I was spending all my time thinking of me and what I was going to buy and what I was going to do and, and my kingdom not spending time thinking about God's kingdom. You know, Philippians 4, 7, and 8 says, think about what is good, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, and then the peace of God will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. If we can take our minds off of ourselves, not think less of ourselves, don't diminish ourselves. If, If you guys came up to me and you're like, oh, like that was good worship today. And I was like, oh, no, I messed up on the second song. That's not humble. That's prideful. I'm still thinking about me. I'm, st- I'm still absorbed in self. I'm like, oh, like I-, I didn't do very good. That's not what humility is. Humility is not tearing down how good something is. It's not, a de- like I said, it's not a depreciating or devaluing or self-deprecating approach. That is not humble. If you came up to me and said you did a good job and my response is, oh, I, I messed up, that was still me, me, me still focused on me. My actual response should be, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Praise God that you were blessed. He, he is a good God, isn't he? Appreciate praise. That is the proper response for someone who has, is cultivating a, a heart of humility, a humble heart. Just to, it's an easy example for me because I, I went to a school for music with a bunch of other worship leaders, so that was kind of like an early topic that we captured. Um, but it's, it's strange, like someone says, oh no, like I messed up that initially kind of sounds humble because they're not being, I know. They're not like, you know, Tony Stark, you know, this narcissistic, like, it doesn't sound like that, but when you start to uncover the layers, it is. It is prideful. It is self-inflated. It, it doesn't look like it. It's a different species, but it is nonetheless. So, Job is dealing with this kind of pride, and I would wager, or I would submit a, a very small degree He's obviously not cocky, but um, he is in a woe-is-me state. Shortly after his, uh, his decree that I could take God to court and I would win, after that, shortly after that, bef- but before God speaks, um, this fourth friend, Elihu, enters the scene. And um, he's not pleased with uh, how Job is handling himself, and he's definitely not pleased with how the three friends are handling himself, handling themselves. Um, I'm going to read to you guys chapter 32. This is where Elihu actually speaks. And apparently he's been here a while. We don't, I don't remember if it says earlier when he comes. You know, we clearly see the, the three friends arrive. We're given their names and where they're from. But all of a sudden, chapter 32, at the tail end of the book, we see this guy pop up. But he's been there listening to some of these arguments. 
chapter 32 of Job, verse 1 says, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, uh, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be wrong. Again, they were certain that he, there must have been something wrong with Job and they could not entertain an alternative reality. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he, and when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these men, he burned with anger, and Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, and he and he begins to rebuke them. And it's, I think it's kind of cool. It says he's young in years. So he was like, he was the small fry. He was kind of taking his, letting his turn. He was saying, I was going to let age, you know, the aged ones battle it out and like let, let wisdom have its way, but clearly there is no wisdom. Um, and, he, and he says everything right. Let me just read you the title so that we can kind of move through the, the narrative real quickly. But the titles of these next chapters, like this title, 32, is Elihu rebukes Job's three friends. 33 is Elihu rebukes Job. 34, Elihu asserts God's justice. Elihu condemns Job. 35, 36, Elihu extols God's greatness. And 37, Elihu proclaims God's majesty. After Job and his three friends finish arguing, Elihu is angered because the friends cannot come up with an answer, although they were certain Job has sinned. And he's mad at Job for justifying himself rather than God. He is not happy with how the dialogues have played out. He is not happy with the lack of conclusions reached. He's not happy with um, the pride in Job. Again, I don't think it's that... Like, when I think of pride, I don't think of Job, honestly. I mean, he handled himself pretty well, but nevertheless, there is some pride in him, which we will now see gets eradicated. Which brings us to our last section, which I've titled God. Um, And we'll see what conclusions can be drawn from the book of Job. Also, the point of, of coming to church and coming and listening to these, these sermons um, is, to, is to put God on display, obviously. Uh, Mike has done that. I talked about God's glory. But the whole point is to, is to, to talk about God is, what, is, is why, we, why we do this. And so I think there's a, a really rad section in this book um, from chapters, I think, 38. Yeah, 38 to 40, um, 41, about God finally answering Job. Um, again, not in a very comforting way, not in a way that is very satisfying, um, but nevertheless a way that is very cool. I'm going to read you guys Job 38, a handful of verses. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. First of all, that's really cool. Like, I don't know if that's a tornado or how that would look, but that's freaking awesome. God answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Dress yourself like a man. And other translations says, gird yourself, gird up your loins. So I kind of like, I picture like picking up your pants like you're ready to do some work. God is saying, buckle up. I will question you and you will answer me. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely you know. Second point really briefly, God is being sarcastic here, and I think that's the coolest thing ever, getting a little window into the personality of God. But God is in this rhetoric that just comes rapid fire at Job. In, the, in sprinkled throughout this, we get some sarcastic remarks from God, which I think is incredible. Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? 
On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be taken, shaken out of it. Um, fasting forward a little bit to verse 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were there then, and the number of your days is great. Clearly, you know. Again, a sarcastic remark. I mean, this goes on and on and on, up until verse 40, and God finishes with, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And Job's like, I'm going to stop talking now, is Job's response. I'm going to... That's Job's response. And God says, nope, buckle up, it's time for round two. And gives him a whole other chapter of this rapid-fire rhetoric. Again, like Job isn't expected to answer any of these things. But at the same time, these aren't answers of what Job can and can't do. Obviously, he can't do any of these. He doesn't know any of these answers. He wasn't there at any of these times. It's actually God bragging of all the things that he's done, of all the things that he knows, of all the things that he has hands in. Have you called the dawn since the beginning of your days? So... Does the sun rise on its own, or is God actively involved in the rising of the sun every single day? Kind of sounds like the latter one, which is really cool. Do you know this? Where were you when? Can you explain? Or all, all these types of questions that God is, is firing at Job one after another. And for three decent-sized chapters, God is putting Job in his place through rhetoric that actually shows the power and knowledge of God, not Job. Basically, Job, shut up and sit down is the gist of what just happened. Then Job apologizes, repents, and everything is restored to him. The end. The book is not exactly a comforting book because um, if, you, if what you do is like, oh, Job's fortunes are restored, so I'm suffering, and so I'm going to get all my stuff back, and I'm going to get better. That's not actually a promise or a guarantee made from the book of Job. If, if, and if that's what you're pulling from Job, that's incorrect and I don't want to disillusion you, but that might not actually ever happen. You might not get better. You might not get your stuff back. I think it's rad hearing about your story and, and James' story. But yes, God does care for you, and he, and he fights for you on your behalf. Um, you know, uh, for example, Mary has been sick for a long time. I'm not saying God is never going to work, but where's her hope in this story if she never gets better? You know what I'm saying? The, the, the conclusion from Job is not, oh, God will God'll make my life easier. He'll, he'll put an end to this suffering. That is not the conclusion. And because of that, it's not, a, it's not the book that I would recommend to someone who is suffering. It's the book I'd recommend to someone who is dealing with pride. I might not say it that way. I might kind of be a little more sneaky about it. Um, hey, dude, you're really you're deceptive, cunning. Um, now, yes, eventually we will be free of sickness and discomfort when we reside in heaven with God triune in our new bodies. Um, but in this lifetime, no guarantee can be made for a life of comfort, at least not from the text that Job gives us. 
We can't assume that our stories will pan out as Job's did. So what are some conclusions that can be made? First of all, God's understanding is different and greater than our own. We see God's belittling rhetoric uh, with Job for a couple of chapters. And um, in the light of Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways. Your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. Verse 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We aren't going to have all the answers, and we're not going to always know why we are suffering, but God does, and that God loves us, and he truly does, and, and that, that should be where your comfort comes from. But also, at the same time, kind of switching gears here, sometimes we need to have like a soldier mentality. Um, when God says, go to Nineveh, you go to Nineveh. Just, just obey. Like that's the, we, are, we, we do belong to a kingdom. We do belong to a king who, 2 Corinthians might, reminds us that we've been bought at a high price. So when God says to do something, we do it. I want to know why. Like we, we get so pouty and so complaining. We want to know why and, and when and what time. We want to be in on all the details, but sometimes you just got to obey. And I know that's like the, the tough love coming out, but sometimes you just, just go. And it, and it is. And remember, God does love you. He is a God of grace and he is a God of mercy. So if, um, hopefully that will bring you some comfort when you're, when you're grappling with just obeying. Um, there's, a, there's a poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson that goes, ours is not to reason why, ours is but to do and die. Which, he's a poet, not a soldier, so, but I think he nailed it on the head. But, you know, um, we're, not so, we're not supposed to have all the answers. Ours is not... You know, we're not part of the angels. We're not in on the plan of God. You know, God does reveal to us his plan for us, sometimes all at once, sometimes in small increments. Sometimes he just says, go, and nothing else. Um, it's not our right to know why things are happening. It's not our right to know the details, the, the itinerary of, of, of our path before us. It's ours to obey. But praise God that we have a... Um, a father who loves us when he, when he says these things, and, and a father who accompanies us in these things. He doesn't just sit on his throne and says, depart and report back in a month. No, God is with us every step of the way because he is an intimate God. That is our comfort when we're coming to grips with obedience when we, when we don't want to. Point number two, God doesn't work with the surface or the superficial. He works with the heart. Look at the life and teachings of Jesus. He was all about the heart. And what was that famous line that he said to the Pharisees? Um, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God is more concerned with the heart. We see, we, we see God let the adversary take Job's homestead, his health, and his family. These are all superficial. These are not his heart. You know, his heart is underneath all those things. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying that homes... The homes that we craft or the families we create or the bodies that we care for are not no big deal. Um, but in the case of Job, it wasn't until all these things were removed that his heart could begin to be worked on. It wasn't until those things were removed that his pride could be seen and therefore undergo remodeling. Whether God allowed all this to happen intentionally all to teach a lesson, like was the lesson like God, like, I, I, don't, I don't know, sometimes I don't know how much God intentionally plans. I don't know the mind of God. Um, if the whole point was to teach Job a lesson, was that the point of it, or did God just see the opportunity and pounce? Like, I don't know. Either way, Job receives a heart lesson. Point number three, who are we to judge? 
Job's friends were certain that Job was wrong about something, and it misrepresented God, and it frustrated Job. Um, don't, don't be like Job's friends. Don't presume to know why someone is suffering or attribute their suffering to some sin. Whatever happened to judge not, lest you be judged. Whatever happened to he who is without sin, cast the first stone. I mean, not even Jesus came to condemn the world, but to save it. And so where do we get this judging mentality from when even our Savior, who we are emulating, didn't even do that? And lastly, again, which is not, again, not very satisfying. It's not very satisfying points to pull from the book of Job, but there might not be a knowable point to your suffering. I'll remind you that not once in the, in the dialogue between God and Job does God ever give an answer to why Job is suffering. There's never a why. He never clues him in, like, oh, yeah, Satan and I had a bet going, totally won, by the way. You did great. Like, no, he doesn't, doesn't cue him in to, like, you know, the, the dialogue between the adversary and God. He doesn't let him know that there was a, a wager going on. He doesn't, none of that. He doesn't, there's, there's never a why given. It's just, who are you? to talk to me. Where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? Surely you know. Have you walked the trenches of the deep ocean? Do you know where the goat goes? He did, question after question, there's never a why given. It's just God putting him in his place. There might not be a knowable point to suffering. Now we know when we read the New Testament that trials, suffering produces endurance and strength of character and so on and so forth. But that's not necessarily what I want you to take away from this. Our first response to suffering should not be, why, Lord, why me? Why you let this happen to me? Our first response to suffering should be, hallelujah, God is still good. Our first response should be like Job's first response, which is, the Lord gave and the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is the attitude that we should have after reading the story of Job. Sometimes there isn't going to be an answer, and if your peace of mind comes from knowing uh, what death will bring when we're finally reunited with God. If that's how far off your hope is, I'm, I'm sorry, but so be it. For some people, their, their peace is death. It's when, when, when Christ, or when Christ returns. You know, I can't, I can't sit here and promise you that it's going to get better or it's going to get easier. I can promise you that Christ is coming back. And if that's how far off your hope is, I'm sorry, and I know that's easier said than done, but so be it. For some people, their hope is, oh, I just got to make it to, got to make it to the weekend. Some people don't have that. I, gotta, I just got just to get through church and I'll be home free and I'll be on Christmas break. And, you know, some of us have, like, some hopes, but some people don't. Maybe your hope is when Christ returns, which who knows when that is. Maybe your hope is when you die and you're finally rid of all this pain and suffering. I'm sorry, but if, if that's it, so be it. But that I can promise you. I can say that Christ is coming back. After I just said, don't be certain about things. I have faith that Christ is coming back. This is when I was going to get into the whole gaze fixed on self, get off of self and onto and onto God, um, but I've already covered that. Sometimes what we need to say to someone who is suffering is, and, and they're starting to feel the weight of it, is, so what? Oh, I, I lost my, my home, my family, and my blood. Like, so what? I know that sounds really insensitive, but this is, I'm, I'm pulling on a lesson from my my Bible teacher, it says it's not necessarily insensitive. It's not that you don't care about their suffering. It's that you're willing to dispense with the excuses to get to their heart. Oh, woe is me. We, we get into this woe is me mindset and uh, my life is harder than everyone else and we're just we're self, 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 self. And it's like, yeah, so what? What are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond? Are you going to have faith through this? 
knowing that, if anything, Christ is going to come back. Again, if that's how far off, knowing that God is good, or just knowing that he is greater than you and that he, you should just be praising, regardless of what you get out of it. Again, the, the reason I did this was because I wanted to tear down our pride. We, we're so self-focused, like, oh, that sounds mean. Like, praising when I'm suffering? That's not fair. It's like, if, that's, that's why we're talking about this. It's because the proper response to suffering is hallelujah. The proper response to suffering is God is good. Can we say that when, when fires burn down our homes? Can we say that when someone shoots up a ton of people in Las Vegas? That came off really kind of rough, but can we still praise in those times? Or are we going to sit and pout and be, woe is me? This is not fair. Like, no, if that's, that's not the mindset that we, we ought to have. The idea of, of why we come to church, um, you know, it's, it reminds us of our depravity, of how desperately we need God's grace, and reminds us of God's greatness and how much holier he is than us. And it reminds us that right between our depravity and the greatness of God is this man called Jesus who died on a cross for our sins and bridges that gap. And when the gospel story isn't powerful, when the birth of, of Jesus from a virgin and that man's ultimate death on a cross isn't potent anymore, typically you've forgotten just how deprived you are or just how great God is or both. And that's why we come to church. We come to church to remind ourselves that, yeah, I, I am in desperate need of God's grace because I am wicked. Like Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips. And we remind ourselves of the greatness of God, the works of his hands, what he's created. Like Job, in Job, God lists out all the things that he has done from himself, no less, straight from the source. From Job, we're reminded of our wickedness and God's greatness. And we can see things through the New Testament, and right in between that is Jesus the go-between, our, our mediator, our perfect high priest. I would challenge you guys to, as you go out into your week and as you go out into your life, be on the hunt for pride because it is, it is crafty. Um, it has lots of species. It has, it's, it's the sin of a thousand faces. Um, and it's n- something that we'll probably never be done with in this lifetime, but that's, that's my encouragement to you guys is be on the hunt for pride. And never, never stop reminding yourself of how desperately you need God. Never stop reminding yourself of just how great he is. And never stop reminding yourself of, of who Jesus is and what that means. I'm sorry I've made a mess of the front here. Um, but we are going to get into a time of worship. If I could have some of the elders come forward. And, um, and uh, we're going to have a, a time of ministry and a time of prayer. If you guys need prayer for something, if, if it's just occurred to you that you have been prideful, um, um, Certainly not a, a good thing to have in the holiday season is a sense of arrogance and a self of self-entitlement. Um, if it's, if it's uh, family strife, if it's, if it's health, um, feel free to make your way to the front. Um, and we're going to have a time of ministry. It's not going to be too long because it is Christmas and I think we're all itching to get some food. Um, but yeah, if you would join me in